We're going to turn now to God's Word. Uh, I'm going to say a few words of introduction as we're turning back to Exodus. Uh, last year, we uh, began our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus and uh, looked carefully at the first 18 chapters of Exodus, which tell the story about how God heard the cries of the Israelite people who were brutally oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians, and how through Moses, God liberated them. And we read about the famous stories of Moses encountering the burning bush and the ten plagues and the people passing through, you know, the the parting of the Red Sea. And now we're uh, coming to chapters 18 and 19 of the book of Exodus, where there's a shift that is happening in the story. Moses has led this whole population of slaves who are living out in the wilderness. And naturally, these, you know, thousands and thousands of people who are basically all camping together is, have been spent months together. Obviously, conflicts are beginning. And so Moses is having to mediate all the conflicts, and it's wearing him out. And so Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, tells Moses, you need to appoint judges among the people who are going to help you mediate between all these conflicts that these people are having. And if you are a judge in Israel and two people come to you with a complaint, arguing with one another, how are you going to decide what to do with the complaint? You're going to ask, what does the law say? That's what judges do. What does the law say? What happens over the next five chapters of Exodus is God is giving his people and these judges a law to govern them. Actually, the next next chapter, Exodus 20, is what? The Ten Commandments, the beginning of the giving of the law. And in these pages, what's happening in these pages is uh, Israel, they're going to be transformed from kind of a transient mob of runaway slaves into a kingdom. Uh, with laws, with a governing structure, with a constitution. They're being transformed as a people. And this chapter, Exodus 19, is one of the most important for understanding the Bible as a whole. You know, some of you have tried to pick up the Bible and read through it. It's 1,500 pages. And you're like, wow, this thing is complicated. What is there some overarching story that ties it all together? Exodus 19 is one of the chapters that does that, ties the whole story together. And so just to prepare you, this is a teaching sermon, it's an explaining sermon. You know, it's, my cousins were visiting from out of town. They're not Christians, and they were like, yeah, there's a lot, a lot going on there. But they said it was interesting. They never heard the Bible explained before. And so, um, but you'll also notice that uh, the passage I'm about to uh, read is, pretty long. It's one of the longer passages I've maybe read on Sunday mornings, um, because we're not only reading chapter 19, but I've dipped back into chapter 18 to read the the end of chapter 18 as well. And the reason for that is that today, uh, our church is beginning a month-long nomination period for new elders and deacons. So our session, the session is the group of elders who lead our church, is responsible for governing our community, and the deacons are the group that's responsible for kind of ministering to, caring for, serving both the congregation and our neighbors. You just heard from Ray, who's talking about, you know, how do we love our neighbors? That's what the, that's what the deacons are thinking about. And as our church grows, uh, we need more elders and deacons. And the judges that are in this passage from Exodus 18 are kind of the precursor to, uh, the, they're the elders of the Old Testament. 
And so the governing structure that we use as a church goes all the way back to the 15th century BC, Israel. I mean, it's ancient. It's throughout the Bible. And, uh, and so as part of this sermon, we're gonna, as we're thinking about God's kingdom, we're going to talk about what are we looking for for the elders and deacons in our church. And this passage speaks to that as well. So there's a lot to cover. And um, I'm going to read this now to you. During the first service, Nathan Linville saw the text and he said, I put some extra water up there if you need a water break, you know, halfway through reading the passage. So, uh, so we're going to look at Exodus 18 and 19, starting in chapter 18, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Uh, why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you uh, from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter... They shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and then camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people um, all around saying, take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand, shall t- uh, no hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, uh, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings in a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, so many words we just read and many just filled with meaning and truth for us. We pray that you would be our teachers. We uh, open our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned, uh, this passage I just read, that long text, it describes the transformation of Israel from being a wandering mob of slaves who've just left, left, left Egypt and being transformed into a kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to study this passage by answering three questions about God's kingdom. This is what the three questions are. Who is the king of the kingdom? Who are the people of the kingdom? And how is the kingdom governed? Three things about God's kingdom. Who's the king? Who are the people? And how is it governed? And this passage, passage has important answers to those questions. So, first question this morning is this. Who is the king of the kingdom? And this passage in chapter 19 begins in verse 1 by saying that the scene here is three months after Israel had left Egypt. And they've been going through the wilderness and God led them 
to Mount Sinai, they're, and they're encamped there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And when they first get to Mount Sinai, they're going to be at Mount Sinai all the way through the end of Exodus and the book of Leviticus and into the, the book of Numbers. So much of the next many chapters of writing in the Bible happen at Mount Sinai. And there's an initial statement that God says right when they get there that's uh, the statement that I think is one of the most important in the Bible. And this is what it says in verse 3. Chapter 19, verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let me explain those words. What's happening in this scene is something that was common in the world of the ancient Near East. Uh, you know, the people of the ancient Near East were constantly at war with each other. There were all these little kingdoms, tribes that would invade one another. And what would frequently happen if you were a weaker, smaller tribe or kingdom, and, and a stronger kingdom was coming against you, what you might do is go find another king who had a strong army and say, hey, listen, we're being invaded. We need your help. Will you come protect us from this inv these invading armies? And if you protect us, we'll become your servants. And, you know, we'll give our loyalty to you. And so if the stronger king agreed, there would be a treaty that was written between the two kingdoms where the stronger king or the suzerain would write out the terms of the relationship with the vassal or the, or the weaker kingdom. And there was a, a Hittite format to those treaties that always followed a certain structure. And this is what the structure would be. The suzerain, at the beginning of the, the document, would tell the story of all the things the king had done for the weaker kingdom. You know, we conquered, we won this battle, and we sent our army, and we helped you, and we conquered these people for you. And these are all the ways that we've rescued you, so you don't forget all that we've done for you. And then the next section, the king would list out all the commands and expectations that the weaker kingdom had to do for the, for the suzerain. And it would start with some general principles of love and, and obedience and, and loyalty and then more specific commands. And then at the end of the document, there would be a listing of the blessings and curses that would happen whether the weaker kingdom honored the treaty. So if you do the things in the treaty, hey, it's going to go well for you. We're going to help you out. If you rebel against the treaty, these are all the curses that are going to come upon you. Now, the early books of the Bible follow this exact Hittite structure. The books of Genesis and Exodus tell the story of all that God did to save Israel, right? How Abraham was chosen and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, how God protected them and cared for them, and then how he saved them from the Egyptians and conquered their enemies. It's telling the story how God, the king, has cared for them. And then what's going to happen, uh, the second half of Exodus all the way through the book of Leviticus is going to detail out all the instructions that God has given to them. Now I'm your king. I've saved you. And this is what I expect from you. And the general principles come in the very next chapter. The Ten Commandments are kind of the general principles. And then it gets more detailed and they're supposed to build the tabernacle for him. And here's how you do the sacrifices in Leviticus. And there's those laws about caring for the poor and the sojourner. And then you get to the end of the book of Leviticus. And what happens at the end of the book of Leviticus? There's a listing of the blessings and curses 
that will come upon Israel depending on whether they honor the treaty with their new king. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, it follows this exact structure as well. And this is precisely what the Lord is saying as he is forming this kingdom in verse 4 where he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's saying, this is, this is what I did for you. And then verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Here are the commandments that you need to obey. And by the way, this structure, the exact structure of the New Testament as well. If you go read the New Testament, how does the New Testament start? It's a narrative, it's a story about how God saved us through Jesus. It tells, this is all that I've done for you. And Jesus, the new king has come, who's died for us and freed us from our sins. And the book of Acts and all that he did through his apostles and establishing his church. And then what comes next? You have all these letters written to the churches about how you're supposed to live and how do you honor the covenant that God, God has made with you and how does the New Testament end? The book of Revelation, the blessings and curses about what will happen when you honor, honor God or whether you turn away from him in the final judgment. This is, the Bible as a whole is a covenantal document. It is the treaty that God the king, the suzerain, has written to govern how we will live in his kingdom. That's what this book is. The whole book is that way. And I'll tell you why this was helpful for me. Um, when I first became a Christian, and for much of my Christian life, I'd heard often the language of kingdom. And for me, I always thought of the kingdom as some kind of vague description of where you go when you die. It's like the spiritual place where God is. That's what the kingdom is. And so that the kingdom was some kind of metaphor for heaven. And then I realized, this is actually quite recently, that no, quite literally, God is building a kingdom in the earth. There are all these other kingdoms in the earth, right? And they have kings, or they have presidents, or they have prime ministers, or they have congresses, they have people who are ruling them. They have written laws that the people of those kingdoms are required to know and obey, and there are consequences if they don't obey them, and there's blessings if they do obey them. And, of course, the question of what makes for a just nation is one of the most burning questions in not just our society, in any society. But, you know, I know for me, if I go to the news thing on my... Uh, my iPhone, you know, nine times out of ten, the first thing that's going to come up is something about Donald Trump, something about the ruler, and is something about the laws that are being made in, in our country. And since humans have failed so miserably to make just societies, God has said, I am going to come and make my own just society, my own just kingdom. And in this sense, the Bible is a profoundly political document. I know some of you, when you hear that, the Bible's political, you think that means that the Bible has an ideology that's either liberal or conservative, or the, you know, Christians should be Republicans or Democrats. That's not what I mean at all. What I mean is uh, that it is the written document by which God, the king, rules his kingdom, and the kingdom we are members of and a part of is an alternate kingdom to the nations and kingdoms of this world. So the first question to understand the kingdom is, who is the king of the kingdom? A kingdom needs a king. It is God himself. He is the suzerain. We are the vassals. We are the weak nation that needed to be rescued and saved, and he did save us. But a question that arises for me in this passage is that the Lord also says that the whole earth 
is his. But Israel is going to be his treasured possession. He has this one nation, he, all the nations God made, all the families of the earth God made, and yet there's this one that he privileges, puts his love on. Now, the question I have is if God does that, privileges one nation, one people group, is that, is, you know, is that to the exclusion of all the other nations? Is that going to form a kind of racism, that this is a special ethnic group that God loves more than all the others? That leads to our second question. It's not just who is the king of the kingdom, but who are the people of the kingdom. Every kingdom has a king, it has laws, and it has people who are part of the kingdom. And the answer to that, who are the people of the kingdom, is in verse 6, chapter 19, verse 6, where it says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, in ancient Israel, there was one family that was given the priesthood. So, you know, there are 12 tribes in Israel, and one of those tribes was Levi, and one family within that tribe was called to the priesthood. And the priests were to represent God to the people and to represent uh, the people to God. And they were teachers. And all their work was toward the pe- was aimed at the people's relationship with God. And so to be a kingdom of priests means God is saying, okay, Israel, you know how you have these priests who teach you about God? The relationship that you have with them is the relationship that all the nations are going to have with you. You know, or to uh, put it a little more closer to home, I'm your pastor. And you think of the relationship I have to you as your pastor is the relationship that you all are to have to the people of Bellingham and Whatcom County. You know, if I'm your priest, pastor, you're the pastors and priests of, of this community. And this is the answer to the question of why did God choose one nation? Does he not love the other nations? No, God is loving the other nations through the chosen nation. That is his plan. You know, it's kind of like asking, why did God choose me to be your pastor? Was it for me? No, it was for you. And why did God choose you to be a kingdom of priests? Was it for you? No, it was for them. And this is an important theme in other passages of the Bible. So, for example, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham was called by God. God chose Abraham, and he says he's going to love Abraham in a special way. He says, I, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And he says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will find blessing. God's chosen people are not chosen for themselves, but are chosen for the sake of the rest of the world, and that's what it means to be priest. And this is exactly, Exodus 19 is the exact verse that is used by Peter in the New Testament to talk about the church. You know, you might read the Bible and say, oh yeah, in the Old Testament there was Israel, and then now in the New Testament there's the church. That's not really how the Apostle Paul talks about it. He says in the Old Testament there was Israel, and that all of us foreigners, even not Israelites, have been brought into Israel. We've been welcomed in by Jesus into the people of God. And, you know, the people of Israel has expanded. So all these stories of the Old Testament are our stories because we're now Israel. And this, will, this is what he says 
to us, the church, 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is all the language of Exodus 19. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What that means, what Peter is saying, is that God's plan in Exodus 19 in the 15th century B.C. has not changed. His purposes have not changed of what he intends to do through his people. And that verse from 1 Peter 2, by the way, is where our church's mission statement comes from. The mission of Christ Church Bellingham is to proclaim the excellencies of God. That comes from 1 Peter 2. We're the kingdom of priests. We're the holy nation. You know, We're his treasured possession. In Bellingham and from there throughout the world through worship, disciple-making, deeds of love, and church planning. Our mission is this verse. And so what does it mean for us to be the priests of Whatcom County? You are all the priests of Whatcom County. What does it mean to be a priest? Well, you know, I, one way I envision that is you think about the way that our pastors' role we play in this community. What's that role, you know? Well, one is if you have something happening in your life, and you're like, you know, I'm in a dark place. I need someone to talk to that I know would listen to me, would pray for me, maybe give give me some insight from the scriptures, and would not be pushy, but would be a gentle, trusting, safe place where I could go. That's what a pastor or priest is supposed to be. And so um, we are the community that are supposed to be those people in Bellingham. You know, when someone says, you know, I want to think about my life. I want to think about God. And not everyone wants to do that all the time. So we're not pushy. We don't push our beliefs on people. But there comes a time where someone says, you know, I want to rethink my life. I want to think about who God is. They're going to know that when they, you know, maybe they work with you or maybe they're your neighbor, they know that you would be the right person to talk to. And they come and say, hey, could we get a beer? Could we have a cup of coffee and talk about what's happening in my life? So that when someone is ready to go deep, they know that you'd be the person to go deep with. God is scattering priests like that, all of us, all throughout Bellingham and Whatcom County. So every workplace has one. Every neighborhood has one. And he wants that care present throughout Bellingham and Whatcom County. And so God is the king of the kingdom. And the people of the kingdom are those chosen by God to be his priests to the rest of the world because he loves the world. There's one more thing that I want to say about this second point, about who the people are, is because you say, okay, the people are a kingdom of priests. Well, how do you become a priest? Well, again, this takes a little explanation because this paragraph I just read to you is, is followed by a dramatic scene where all the people are called to appear before God at Mount Sinai. And what they do is they wash their garments and they're consecrated. And you see that there in... in in verse 9, where it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of of all the people. Now the word, Hebrew word there, Kadesh, that's used for consecrate, appears again in 10 chapters in Exodus. 
In Exodus 28 and 29, you know what those chapters are about? The ordination of priests. And what's happening here is that Mount Sinai is becoming the place where the holy God dwells. You know, there's all the lightning and there's the trumpets and the thunders and then the, there's fire coming down and there's thick clouds and there's smoke around the, the, uh, around the mountain. And uh, later in Exodus, you will find that God will not only dwell on this mountain, but, you know, the Israelites are all these slaves who've left Egypt and they're wandering around the desert and they're living in tents. And God says, okay, I'm going to live with you. I need a tent too. So he gives them instructions on how to build this tent called the tabernacle where he's going to live with them. And, you know, when they pack up their tents, he packs up his tent and they go and they travel and they live by one another. And what happens in the end of Exodus, when he comes to fill the tent, it's a thick cloud, it's fire, it's smoke, it's the glory of the Lord. So the tent is like a portable Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is following them around. God's presence is following them around. And when you understand that, you see that there is a parallel between what the whole nation is doing here, washing and being consecrated, and what happens when the priests are ordained. Look at verse 17, what it says there. Chapter 19, when Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, or then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They come and they stand at the place of God's dwelling. The exact same thing happens with the priest 10 chapters later where it says in 29, you shall, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. The people come to the foot of the mountain with a cloud. The priests come to the entrance of the tent with the cloud. Both chapters talk about priests, consecration, and washings. They are parallel actions by which they are ordained as priests. And so, uh, to become, you become a priest in God's kingdom when you stand before God and are consecrated with water. Does that sound like anything to you? That's what baptism is. And both of these washings, this is the Old Testament precursor to baptism. Is that if you have been baptized, you have been ordained as a priest in God's kingdom, and you have been enlisted in God's mission to bring blessing to every ethnic group of the world as his beloved priests. And so you can see how this passage, in amazing ways, really ties together God's purpose throughout the Bible. That God's purpose in the world is to fill the earth with his blessing and love, and he does so by choosing a people who he sets his love on, and they, as priests, will extend that love to all the people groups of the world. But, um, as you can imagine, just because the people are washed with water and go through this ceremony, that doesn't automatically make them into a blessing. They need help. They need teaching. And so that leads to our last question. Who's the king of the kingdom, God? Who are the people of the kingdom, the, the priests, the kingdom of priests? How is the kingdom governed is our last question. And you might wonder, you know, okay, there are all these kingdoms and nations in the world, and God is forming his own kingdom and nation with its own laws, and it's a nation that's supposed to bless all the other nations. But how is God's kingdom different from all the other nations? And probably the biggest refrain, if you read through God's law, one of the biggest refrains that you hear over and over through that law is, um, 
is that the Israelites are to remember what it was like to be slaves, to be oppressed, to be foreigners in Egypt. Remember you were slaves. Remember, was, remember how the Egyptians treated you, and you're not to be like that. You're not supposed to treat the vulnerable, the weak, the poor in your kingdom like that. And it's almost like maybe they were put there for that kind of training so that they would become a different kind of, of, of nation. And the way that they would remember that is that God would give them leaders who would hold them to the law of love that God had given them. And in uh, this passage that we read from chapter 18, it tells the story of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the Midianite, who tells Moses that he can't handle every dispute that's happening in Israel. And so he says to Moses, you should appoint leaders who will help Moses teach the law to Israel and make sure the Israelites honor that law. This is precisely the role of our elders in our church. They make sure we stay faithful to God's word and they help resolve problems that come up in our community. And I'll tell you, as we think about Christ Church Bellingham and a long-term vision for the faithfulness of this ministry, probably having uh, uh, quality, godly elders and deacons is one of the most important things that we can do as a church community. Over and over again, the Bible says when the leaders go wrong, the people go wrong. We need faithful leaders. And so who should serve in these roles in our church? Chapter 18, verse 21, gives a good summary. It says, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. And there are three qualities that, that Jethro highlights that you should look for in your elders. And I want to talk about each of those qualities briefly, okay? So the first is, it says that they should be able men from all the people, which means that they should be men who have competence in doing the work of ministry. That is, if... You know, we're, uh, as a church, when we select the people who should be elders and deacons in our church, it should be people who are already doing the work of elders and deacons. It shouldn't be someone that said, you know, I bet if we gave them a chance and put them in that office, they would really thrive and they would have a, they would have a fruitful ministry. No. They're doing the fruitful ministry, and then we put the office on something that they're already doing. Showing that competence. Um, and Jethro says that these are able men from all the people. They're people that are not born into this role. They come from any class. They come from any family. That's often something that we should think about is to open our eyes to maybe people who is being fruitful. It may not be the, 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 most, the first people we think of. And actually, you find out in Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 1 is a parallel passage to this, that these elders were elected by the people. It's quite amazing that in the 15th century BC, Israel already had an elected representative government. That's the government that God said the people need to choose who their leaders and who their judges are going to be. And so you are going to elect and say, who will we follow as our leaders? And so we're entering into a nomination period where you all will submit names of able men that you see already doing the work of elder or deacon. 
And those candidates will then enter into a training time. We're going to have classes in, in the fall. And then they will work alongside the elders and deacons for a training time up until next summer. And then at that time, those who have been trained and vetted by the session will be presented to the congregation, and you will vote on them and say, these are the men that we want leading our church. Please be praying for that process. Okay, so the first quality is that they're able, they're competent, and they come from all the people. The second is that they should be men who fear God, men of truth. You see in verse 21 where it says trustworthy, that's literally in Hebrew, men of truth. Uh, Men who fear God are people who say, I do not throw out passages of the Bible that I don't like. And I will honor the word of God even when it's unpopular. Even when our culture does not like it, we trust, let God be true and every man a liar. We trust God's word above our own words and wisdom. And they fear God as they approach his word. And that means that elders should know the scriptures, but also come to understand the scriptures. They should have theological convictions that they've worked through over years of being a Christian. And so in our church, elders need to know a fair amount about theology and Christian doctrine as well. And and, uh, they need to read the Bible in a way that's in in accord with how the church has historically uh, read the Bible throughout throughout history. The third quality that we see in here, okay, they're competent, they are men of truth, and third, they should hate a bribe. Of course, these are the, the judges in ancient Israel, so if they're going to be a just society, they must not be taking bribes, but I think a broader principle is that they should be men of character. And if you look at the example in the New Testament of the qualifications for elders of 1 Timothy, you'll see that there are 15 qualifications list, listed there. And only one of them has to do with ministry competence, that they're able to teach. The other 14 are about character. And in the church, character is paramount. And there are often people in the church who know a lot about the Bible, who have lots of skills in doing ministry, but are not people who are loving and gentle. They're not people of character. We don't want someone like that to be our elders and deacons. And one of the primary places that Paul says to look for character is in the home. Looking at marriage. And this is a sensitive matter. But if you cannot create an environment in a home where there's joyful faithfulness, where the people in the home are led into a joyful love for the Lord, how, if you can do it in the home, how are you going to do it in a whole church? And so our church, we're going to have this nominating period And uh, you're going to receive an email from uh, Ray Deck this afternoon. We'll give you instructions on how to nominate people. These are the three things you should be thinking about is their competence, their doctrine, their knowledge of the scriptures, but most of all, their character. And I would say this also, you know, for many of you, as you're thinking about who, who should be an elder or deacon in our church, you know, your home group, for example, might be a place where you think about who are the people in my home group who've really impacted our home group and been shepherds in our home group. And um, one of the things to think about, if you're going to nominate someone, you might go to someone else in your home group and say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm thinking of nominating so-and-so. Do you agree with that? And if they do agree with that, then both of you should nominate. And it would be great when we receive nominations that, you know, if we get a nomination, well, a person just has one name, you know, one person nominated them, but someone else had seven names nominating them. That really tells us something about them. So 
What I'm asking is, as a congregation, we'd be actively, prayerfully involved in this. And if there are people you know that have really ministered to you, take the time to nominate them. And, and, and let's have a conversation as a church. Okay? So, God's kingdom is governed by these officers that, that the Lord appoints by the election of his people. Okay? So, I want to summarize what I said. I know this is a lot this morning. Why is this all important? It's because we are a part of a kingdom. Jesus, who is the God of Exodus, Jesus is the God of Exodus, is our king, and he is training us to be priests in Bellingham and Whatcom County, and he has an administration for his kingdom of elders and deacons to make sure that his kingdom is healthy and faithful. And if you hear that and you say, you know, this is hard to believe that Jesus, you know, who lived so long, you know, was on earth so long ago, has a kingdom now, and it's like all the kingdoms of the world, but totally different. You need to realize that right now, Jesus has two billion people on this planet who have been baptized and give their allegiance to him as their king. Two billion people who recognize this book is the covenant document by which God rules his people. Jesus' kingdom on earth right now is seven times the size of the United States of America. Jesus' kingdom is way bigger than China. There is no kingdom anywhere close to as big as it on this planet. And he built the whole thing with no drones, no tanks, no guns. You might say, well, you know, what about the Crusades? What about the religious wars in Europe? The kingdom didn't grow then. The kingdom probably shrunk during those times. In the last century, the, the kingdom has grown exponentially. There haven't been guns and drones and tanks. There have been God's priests in every nation loving their neighbors and speaking the truth. Because that's what the king did. He loved his neighbor and he spoke the truth. And the spirit of God is building a kingdom like no other. And we are part of it. We are his priests. And may he teach us to faithfully go out into this community and bring the knowledge of our excellent God and his love to the nations of the world. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, thank you for this rich calling. We thank you that there, the God who made this world the God on mission, that you are actively at work in every ethnic group, every nation of this planet. You are calling people to yourself, drawing them with your love. We present ourselves to you as a kingdom of priests. Teach us, empower us, enable us that we would be those people that our neighbors, our family members, our coworkers would want to go deep with because we are marked by the love of our master and his spirit. It's in his name we pray. Amen.